This morning we are in John's Gospel. We're up to chapter 3. We're calling this John Season 2, For God So Loved. I don't know if you, did you enjoyed that first song this morning, God So Loved, a bit of a theme for our um, next few weeks. And uh, we might, we probably won't get to verse 16 today, but uh, we'll, we'll see how we go. So we're in chapter 3 of John uh, this morning. We've been slowly working our way through John's Gospel. We started a while ago. I'm trying to think when it was. Back in term one, I think. Uh, and we're only up to chapter three. So going by that, by 2030, we'll be up to chapter 10. Uh, now we'll see how we go. Uh, we're breaking it up. So chapter three this morning. But uh, if you've forgotten where we've gone and where we're up to, uh, a little season one recap, if you will. Uh, chapter one, we looked at this introduction that John wrote uh, to his to his audience, and he's talking about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, and he sort of set up this idea that um, Jesus was the Word, Jesus was light, Jesus is God. And he was writing to an audience to try to convince them and to try to convince you and me that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God. In fact, in John 20, in the last two verses of John 20, um, John writes this as like a a purpose statement, if you like, for, for his whole gospel. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in his book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And we're going to see that idea, believing and having life, is prominent this morning. And so the whole book is written so that people who read it might believe in Jesus, and have life. I don't know if you know the verse, John 3.16. Who wants to recite it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, depends what translation, that whoever believes in him might have everlasting, eternal life. Whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. We looked at this idea in chapter 1 that Jesus was the Logos or the Word, the reason for life. Everything finds its origin and purpose in Jesus. And then in the, the, after that, in the rest of chapter 1, we looked at um, looking back through, um, th- through the Gospels and through, uh, through the Old Testament, sorry, looking through Jesus and seeing God's grace in your life, looking at Jesus, and we do all that to live. And then chapter 2 uh, we began to see the beginning of the, the signs. Uh, sometimes the Gospel of John is called, or the first half at least, is called the, the Book of Signs. And there's seven signs that uh, is, of course, a perfect number of seven. And so we looked at the first sign, and that is the, the water into wine. Um, and then the second sign is later on in chapter four. But uh, we begin to see these signs, and they point to Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the Son of God so that people might believe. Uh, We looked at the stories in chapter 2. One of them was Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And the second story in chapter 2, who remembers? Jesus was flipping the tables in the temple. And we talked about this idea that sometimes Jesus fills your table with the new wine and sometimes he flips your table. Jesus sometimes fills your table, but sometimes he turns your table. So this morning, with that in mind, let's read... John chapter 3, we're going to read from 1 to 15, and then we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. So John 3, 1 to 15 says this, There was a man 
from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this, came, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? All the mum said, No way. <laughs> Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So God, we thank you this morning for your word and we thank you that it's able to teach us and challenge us. It's able to fill us. It's able to um, help us walk out our life of faith with you. And God, we pray that you would speak clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Not too long ago, I was involved in youth ministry as a youth pastor a couple of years ago. Um, and I mean, it's, it's a great thing working with teenagers uh, and I remember one day sitting just out here in the foyer of the church on a Friday night um, with a bunch of young guys, probably about 15 or 16 years old at the time. And we were talking, and these a couple of guys there were um, South African. I was just talking to Fern and Warwick and saying, there's a lot of South Africans in church this morning, um, or just in general. It's great. Slowly taking over. Um, anyway, and it's been going on for a long time, apparently. Anyway, I was sitting with these guys, and we got talking about because uh, they were speaking English and they were also speaking Afrikaans to each other. And I was like, what are you saying to each other? And then, and they were probably saying something really nice about me, I'm sure. Um, but we were talking about what, what language are you thinking in when you think? Um, you know, if, if, if you can speak both languages and you speak them both fairly well, fairly fluently, what language do you speak? And one guy said, oh, I, I think in Afrikaans. And then we asked the other guy, what, what language do you think in? And he said, oh, I think in pictures. I was just like, it was just a classic moment of just a, a guy thinking, I don't think in words, I think in pictures. And I love that idea because I think this morning, um, Jesus, he, he, it's like he talks in pictures. He, he often will paint these analogies in these pictures. And so this morning, I mean, there's more than three, but I want to show you three pictures that John, the writer of the gospel, and Jesus through his words paints. And one is about the, the, the picture of darkness, one is about birth, and one is about snakes. Now, we've read to verse 15 this morning, um, and if you read through the whole of chapter 3, you'll, you'll see that the, the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus finishes at the end of verse 15, if you read carefully. And then from verse 16, it's John's commentary on what has just happened. On what Jesus and Nicodemus have just been talking about, John gives a little commentary on 
on that interaction. And so next week we'll look at that commentary. So this morning we're just going to look at the interaction and the second, or the last little bit of John chapter 3, the same sort of uh, thing happens where the conversation between Jesus and John the Baptist happens in verses 20, 22 to 30 and then John gives a little commentary in 31 to 36 and we'll do them together in two weeks' time. And so we're just going to look at this conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus has and these pictures that Jesus paints and, and John through the, the, the first one, John paints as the setting the scene of the darkness. Um, so Nicodemus... Um, is, is a representation, if you like, of you and me. And in case you weren't wondering, here's the, here's the representation of you and me. And it's like we're supposed to see ourselves in Nicodemus. We're supposed to see and relate and identify with Nicodemus in this story. And here's a man, and in verses 24 and 25 of John chapter 2, just before this, remember the chapters and verses weren't put in until much later on, and so this would have been just like, Written. So let's just read verses 24 to 25 into verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. There was a man named Nicodemus. And so Jesus is saying, I don't entrust myself to men. I, I don't there's something about them that's not quite right, and now there is a man. Here's an example. and I mean, this is just a beautiful way in which John writes his gospel. There was a man. Nicodemus, although a rabbi, was a man. He represents all of us. And Jesus was a man as well, but he was the son of God. And remember, that's the whole purpose of why John's writing this. He wants you to see that Jesus was a man in this story too, but he's much more than that. And so there was this man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform these signs you do unless God were with him. At night, Nicodemus comes. The only other, the only other character in John's gospel to come at night and meet with Jesus. Do you know who that was, thinking? Judas. Yeah, not a good story either. Judas, in chapter 13, um, comes at night. And so this, the significance of coming at night is important because it shows us something. This shows us, I think, two things, maybe more than that, but two. One is that he comes at night because he's afraid of what others might think. He's afraid of what others might think. Like um, in the next chapter of chapter 4, the Samaritan woman comes to the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to be seen because she's sort of an outcast for a different reason she doesn't want to be seen. Um, John is, and we'll see this more and more as we unpack chapter 3 and 4, the contrasts in, in these two stories, um, fearful of others' opinions. And this is a real hindrance to coming to Jesus, is uh, we can sometimes come in this darkness because we're afraid of what others might think of us. And it's okay to come to Jesus initially like that. But, if, but we can't keep coming back in the dark. We can't keep hiding our, our walk with Jesus because ultimately it means you care uh, more about what others think of you than your love or devotion to God is. Nicodemus was supposed to be a rabbi. And so how dare he ask these sorts of questions of someone who's not even recognised as a teacher? So he's like the ruler. He's like... Uh, 
top echelon of rabbi teachers of the day, and he's thinking to himself, I've got to just ask this, I'm unsure about a few things here, and I can't be seen to be unsure, so I'm going to sneak away at night, and I've got to ask Jesus about this. He was meant to have the answers, but instead he came with the questions. Maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, and you sometimes have that thought, I should know this by now, but what's that thing about this? What's that thing about that? And you don't, and there's areas of your life that still need transformation, but you just pretend because how dare you not have it not together by now or all together by now. And so you just pretend that you've got it all together. You, got, you pretend that you have all the answers and then secretly you're thinking, oh, I don't know what this means or I don't know what that means or I don't know how to fix this area of my life or I don't know how to see transformation in this part of my life. And the second reason why um, Nicodemus comes at night is because it's symbolic. He was in spiritual darkness. He needed what Jesus was about to tell him. He needed this new life. Nicodemus, who was in the dark, came to the one who is light. Remember John 1, he is the light. You know, light doesn't just affect darkness. It doesn't just um, have some sort of influence on darkness. It dispels darkness. It gets rid of darkness. Darkness doesn't exist in the presence of light. Darkness doesn't exist in the presence of light. Whatever darkness you have, whatever darkness Nicodemus had, it was in Jesus' light and in Jesus' presence able to be dispelled. And how does that happen? Well, we're going to see when we get to the snake's part of that. But we'll see when the snake is lifted up, and that's where we're headed. And Jesus is going to give the final answer to how to be born again, how to be transformed, transferred into the kingdom of light um, through the picture of the snake. And also notice here that Jesus meets Nicodemus in the darkness. Nicodemus doesn't get himself into the light. Nicodemus doesn't sort of have a torch and say, Jesus, here I am. I've got a little bit of light so you can see me. No, Jesus is in the darkness meeting with Nicodemus while he's in the darkness. And that is so significant. Because it teaches us and it tells us that there is no um, ounce of morality or togetherness that you need before you can meet with Jesus, before Jesus will meet with you. Nicodemus doesn't and can't get himself into the light. Only Jesus can meet him there. Jesus steps into the darkness in order, in order to redeem those who are captive by it. It reminds me of this uh, verse in Mark 2, verse 17, when Jesus heard this, he told them, it's not, uh, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but it's the sick who need the doctor. It's not the ones in light who need the light, it's the ones in darkness who need the light. God doesn't demand some moral or religious pre-work to be done before you will meet with him before he will meet with you. His whole mission was to step into the darkness to redeem those in it. That's you and I. And then Jesus gets on to the second picture, this idea of birth, uh, this idea of being born again. And this is probably the, the, the area he spends the most time talking about. 
And the idea of being born again is sometimes, I think, a misused term because um, companies sometimes, I was reading a whole list of companies that have been born again, you know, they use that sort of, that terminology, that phrase when they've made a big change in their company. Um, you know, we've been born again, we've, I don't know, revolutionised this or done this. Um, sometimes it has pretty negative connotations if people in, uh, in the world talk about born-again Christians, are those born-again Christians? Um, it's not always done in a flattering sort of way or an uh, admiral sort of way. I was reading some statistics um, about... Uh, this is in America about born-again Christians. Basically, there's no difference in born-again Christians in terms of um, any sort of morality issue, whether it comes to lying, uh, marriage, infidelity, all those sorts of things are all the same as the rest of the world, uh, all the same as the rest of America, sorry. Uh, And so people who identify themselves as born-again can, again, it it can be misleading. Um, And so we're going to see what it means to be born-again and how it actually... There is some change that happens in your life that shows that you are born again. A misused term. Born again is not referring to some sort of change. It's not some sort of like add-on to your life or some sort of reconstruction, but it's a description of a new heart and a new mind. Paul talks about this idea of death to the old and something new coming. And it happens through the word and work of Jesus. There's no other way that it happens. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus here. You can't teach yourself into the kingdom of God. You can't teach yourself into being born again. There's not enough information you can gather. It is a spiritual um, change that happens in you. It's a spiritual birth that happens. That idea of being born again can also be translated from being uh, born from above. It's not an experience you can have outside of Jesus. I think sometimes for those of us in the church, and again, we can identify so well with Nicodemus here, is that the religious part of our faith can become what's central. And we miss that it's actually about relationship. And you've heard this if you've been in church. You know, when Jesus is not about religion. He's about relationship. Uh, he's not about information. He's about transformation. This idea that we're going to see in chapter 4 when he meets with a Samaritan woman, and we talked about at the start of the year, the idea of truth and spirit. It's no good just having all the right answers and not letting it penetrate the deepest part of your heart and not not being changed because of it. You know, if you look at, if you know the story in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman coming to the well and meeting Jesus there and she is in a life of sin and she is in a broken place in her life. She's not coming to Jesus in the same way Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is coming as someone who's supposed to have it all together. She is someone who's Um, John paints is obviously not having it all together. And when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, what does Jesus talk to Nicodemus about? Well, he's talking to him about becoming alive, being born, having this spiritual experience. And when the woman at the well comes, some of the things that Jesus does is he confronts the woman with some truth, some hard realities of her life. And I think for those of us caught up in religion, often we don't need more truth. Often we don't need more information. We need more of the spirit. We need more of that wind blowing through. And for those who don't know, they need both. Knowledge is critical to believing, but um, they also need the the wind to blow through as well. Uh, I was reading of uh, a German, of all people, a German pastor and professor talking about this idea of diabolical theology. When a person can get their theology right, but their relationship with God all wrong. 
It's possible to know all the stories, all the right answers, just like Nicodemus, but still be in the dark. And I think that, um, that talks to some of those statistics that I was talking about out of America where there's so many people who would say they're born again. Maybe they know all the right answers. They know that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and they know all these sorts of answers, but they're still in the dark. They're like Nicodemus. The new birth is speaking to this idea of life, not information. Theology and studying theology is a bit of a trap because if we're not careful, we can choke out the Spirit because the Spirit of God isn't predictable. The Spirit of God isn't contained neatly into um, our human minds. You know, when Jesus talks about the wind blows where it pleases, you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The spirit, the life, this wind comes and goes wherever, it's li- wherever it likes. It's not seen. It's not explained. It can't be rationalised. If I was to say to you right now, oh, there's a wind blowing through this place, you would probably say to me, no, there's not. <laughs> and how would you know there's not? Well, my papers would be ruffling. The connect cards on the back of the seats might be moving a little bit. Some people's hair might be moving, you would see some effects of the spirit of the wind blowing through. And and likewise, when the spirit is blowing through someone's life, when the spirit is at work, you'll see the effects. No longer can they stay the same, but there is transformation that happens as a result. The things that are um, flexible enough, light enough, subtle enough to respond to the wind are affected by it. And I think that's a beautiful picture as well is that those that are humble, those that are pliable by the work of God, are ready to be changed by the Spirit of God. The sign of being born again is change. It's life. Things that are alive grow. They change, they develop. And like I said, the the born-again picture tells us that it's more than a change. It's more than a restoration. It's more than a pruning but it's a brand new life from the deepest part of you. If um, I was reading um, one commentary's, commentator's um, analogy was talking about this idea of an, getting apples from a pear orchard. If you had a pear orchard, I don't know if anyone's got a pear orchard at home, and you were hoping to get apples, you couldn't prune the pear orchards back enough that next season they'll produce apples. You couldn't... I don't know, paint them a certain colour or spray them with a certain chemical, not yet at least, that they would produce apples. What would you have to do? You have to probably tear the whole... I was going to say, tear the pear... Thanks for ruining my analogy. (laughs) Tear the whole pear orchard out, dig it up, and plant new trees. Plant apple trees, wouldn't you? You'd need to dig it up and start again. New fruit requires new roots. It's not just about coming to church or reading the Bible more or praying more, but having this spiritual birth that changes all of you. It's not a reformation. It's not just adjustments to your life. It's a new life. It's being born again. And again, this idea of being born again, it's, there's so many things we could, we could talk about, and, and some of us don't like talking about birth, but let's just... Think about for a minute the picture that Jesus paints, because I think there's, there's something significant in it. The baby who was born, I've, I've, I've seen three births in my life, and that's, that's plenty, uh, and 
I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. It's, there is so much joy. Maybe the most joy that I've ever experienced in a moment is in that moment of, of birth. And for the mother as well, for, for Alana, I know it's the most joy that she's experienced in a moment. But it's also the most pain she's experienced in a moment at the same time. And I think, you know, the, I've never, none of our three kids came out laughing or smiling. They came out crying. Um, wow, where am I? What is this? Uh, there's, there's pain and there's, there's things that are, I mean, change dramatically when someone is born again, when there's a new life that happens. They've, they have these, all these realisations that I wasn't breathing real oxygen before. I was, you know, there's so much. But the pain that, is, um, that happens through childbirth is a picture that your experience of being born again is not through your pain. I mean, the child that's born, maybe they think that experience was painful, but, I mean, they're going to experience a lot more pain in the future. The pain is from the mother. From someone else's pain, the child is born. And the joy that's experienced is for everyone. Maybe the, um, the joy that's experienced from, from the baby in that moment, you might think, well, how do you know they're experiencing joy? The, I don't. For, for one, you, you can't tell, or at least I can't. Maybe, maybe there's a test you can do. But the, the idea is that before a child is born, there is no way they can experience joy. Joy doesn't exist before they're born for that child. But as soon as they're born, joy exists. Joy is within reach. Life is there before it's, it's not there. And so joy exists in that born-again experience for the baby, where previously it doesn't exist. And joy obviously exists for the mother and, and the father in that moment. Um, and it's why I think in Hebrews 12, the writer says this. He says, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the, the joy laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This idea that pain and joy happen simultaneously at the cross at that moment of new birth. That your experience of being born again is not from your pain, but from someone else's pain. It's from Jesus' pain. And it's why he says in verse 14 and 15, this idea of looking at the snake. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And this is how someone is born again. Belief in the one who was lifted up. In Numbers 21, Jesus is referring to a story here of when Moses and the Israelites were in the desert. The Israelites are complaining. Um, and you can read the story, but God sends snakes and snakes bite them and they're poisonous and they start dying and getting sick. And the Israelites... Uh, Obviously, you get fed up with this and say to Moses, Moses, can you do something? Can you pray to God? Can you help us in this situation? And so Moses prays, God, the people are sorry, they're, they're repentant. Can, what can be done here? I'm paraphrasing. Um, and God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to, to carve a snake out of bronze and put it on a pole and lift it up. And so whenever the Israelites look at that snake on the pole, they will be healed. 
And so that's what Moses does, and that's what happens. And I think it's just a, an amazing picture that the, the snake bite, and in this instance, it's, it's representing the, the, the sting of sin, it's death, that we've all rebelled, we've all fallen short. We are all in need of the wind of the Spirit to blow through and revive us, to make us alive, and we can't do anything about our situation. We can't do anything about our rebellion. The snake bite has already happened. You can't undo it. The sting of sin has already taken its effect in our life. You can't undo it. You need something else. You need something to heal you from that. And so what does God do? He loves us so much, and that's what the next verse in verse 16 goes on to say, for God so loved. You know, this idea that God is angry and somehow Jesus is in between us and the angry God who wants to save us, and so that's what Jesus is doing. No, Jesus is not trying to shield us from an angry God, but Jesus is demonstrating a loving God. God, Jesus is representing the love of God. For God so loved that he gave his son. Verse 16 will go on to say, God so loved that he put Jesus on the cross and put the sting of sin upon him. He becomes the snake on the pole so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The debt of your sin is caused by your own rebellion, your own inability to repay and Uh, make up for what you've done wrong. It's beyond a moral change. It's beyond gathering more information. It can't be done by man. It needs something else. Nicodemus was as good a teacher as you could get. He was as, as good as you could get in terms of the Jewish rabbis of the day. And he got all he could do together, but he was just a man. He needed something else that couldn't come from himself. He needed a saviour. And so the answer to this original question, how can someone be born again? One answer is you can't. You need someone else to do it. It has to come from the spirit, from the work, the miracle work of God. It comes through the pain of another by the sacrifice of another. And so this morning I'm going to ask the, the team to come back up and we're going to take communion during this last song and we're going to remember the one who took our pain. Communion is looking at the snake lifted on the pole. It's looking at Jesus on the cross. He's taking our sin. 1 Corinthians, I think it's 15, talks about um, we, become, we are the righteousness of God and Jesus became sin for us so we might have the righteousness of God, so that our sin might be healed. And so if you're a born-again Christian this morning, if you've had this experience of the Spirit of God making you alive in Christ, communion is a reminder that doesn't come from you. And it, it still doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from your ability to keep a certain moral standard, but it comes from Jesus. It comes from His grace and His goodness in your life. It comes because He loved you. And if you'll continue to believe in Him, you'll have eternal life. 
It comes from the Spirit of God, the loving God through Jesus. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then today is a perfect day to trust Him. Today is a perfect day to look at Him and say, thank you for taking my sin, making me alive in you, and asking the the Saviour to come into your life. So during this last song, the communion is going to be passed out. And I encourage you to take it in your own time, in your own way. Remembering and giving thanks to the one who died in your place. The one who took sin on your behalf and gives you life in exchange. Gives you peace, gives you joy in exchange. Gives you the spirit in exchange. Lord God, we thank you so much for your goodness in our life. We thank you so much that you sent Jesus, not because you were angry with us, but because you loved us so much. God, where there was no way, where every effort we make fell short of your goodness and your glory, God, you made a way for us to come alive in you, to be redeemed into relationship with you. God, I pray this morning you might help us to remember that grace, that goodness, that life that comes from you alone. And God, as that takes root in our hearts, the new fruit, the new life that flows from it will affect our world, will affect our families, will affect those around us. There'll be an overflow of love. There'll be an overflow of grace. Lord God, we're so thankful for all that you've done. We're thankful for Jesus and for the cross. God, we're thankful that He rose again, that He has life, and that He gives us life. Lord God, we thank You so much in Jesus' name.